0: We are in 2 Samuel this morning. So if you've brought your Bibles, open up with me. Uh, It is good to be back, um, back in the pulpit. A couple weeks back, Pastor Steve taught. Last week, I I think you're aware, I was out uh, at Calvary Chapel of Redlands at the packing house. I was invited to speak there at their weekend services. Pastor Bill Welsh was here from Refuge. I still have not had a chance to listen to his message. I'm looking forward to that. he, he'll be back again. Uh, love that guy. But it's been a couple of weeks, a couple of weeks uh, since we've been together in our series through First and Second Samuel, Lessons from the Kingdom for Today. And remember, the goal, honestly, as it always is when, when we study the Word of God, it's to find what it is that He's saying to us uh, about Himself, His plan for our lives, how that Word applies to us today. So this morning... Uh, in Second Samuel chapter nineteen, we'll be looking at the second half of this chapter, and our friend King David—he's—he's he's lived through so much pain. And turmoil. We we followed him through the ups and downs. Called as a young man in the sheepfold to rule over Israel, David came to prominence in a dramatic way, uh, standing out as the only one willing to take on the champion of the Philistines. And that victory over Goliath it made a name for David on the national scene. Eventually, he came to serve in the palace as a court musician, soothing Saul when he was tormented by. Uh, by demons and, and that no doubt had gained access to his life through his own sin and rebellion, but that welcome of David by Saul it soon turned into uh, a paranoid hatred as Saul viewed David as a threat to his own power, and uh, eventually David he had to flee the kingdom to save his own life. And he would spend many years running from Saul. Now, later, of course, Saul was killed in battle and and the Lord cleared the path then for him to be coronated as king. Now, through that sin and failure, David's family, uh, through rather David's sin and failure, which we've also looked at previously, uh, David's family became a a bit of a mess. And, And some of that manifested through rebellion in his own son, Absalom, who uh, mounted a successful coup against his father. We've looked at that the last few weeks that we've been in 2 Samuel. Now, Absalom, though, now has been killed in battle uh, by David's commander, incidentally, against his wishes. David, we believe, had hoped to reason with and gain his son back. But all hope of that reunion and restoration is now gone so where we find ourselves after that Cliff Notes abbreviation of First and 2 Samuel and where we're at right this moment uh, is with the rebellion against David's rule finally ended. But David himself devastated over the death of his son. His own armies are confused and discouraged that their king isn't celebrating victory with them, but is instead grieving over the death of their enemy, Beyond this, Israel itself is in turmoil over how to respond to David. They'd in large part pledged their loyalty to Absalom, his rebellious son, who now is dead, and so it's all a bit awkward. Uh, Israel is kind of standoffish. David is is sort of like, okay, I'm not going to force my way back. You have to welcome me back. It's it's kind of this whole relational uh, strange situation, and so there is going to be application today in our own relationships. So, if it sounds awkward and you think, oh, that sounds like my you know, X, Y, and Z relationship, yes, there, there will be a connection. Now, when we were in this chapter last, Pastor Steve was teaching and we saw David weeping inconsolably. Uh, and Joab, his army's commander, rebuked him in verse 7 Now, therefore, arise, he, he exhorts King David. Go out and speak comfort to your servants, for I swear by the Lord, if you do not go out, not one will stay with you this night, and that will be worse for you than all the evil that has befallen you from your youth until now. Joab says, David, knock it off. I know you're upset about your son, but you've got a nation to lead, and armies that have just put their lives on the line for you. You need to go out and show that you support them, and so David did, which was good. The people, though, are still divided, the 12 tribes. David was a good king. He fought our enemies, but fled when his son threatened to bring war to the nation. And now Absalom, who many of us supported, is gone. What do we do? And what's David going to do with us? There's, There's all this ambiguity and fear. David then appealed to the leaders of the people that he was ready to lead, setting up Uh, one of Absalom's commanders as head of Israel's army, a a conciliatory move, sort of an olive branch, a good faith endeavor to communicate that he would be king of all Israel, not just uh, the area that that surrounded Jerusalem, Um, and that all were welcome under his leadership. Which didn't end up working as well as he'd hoped. Um, we'll look more at the details regarding that next week. But needless to say, Israel is not done struggling uh, to remain unified as as a people. There, there's going to be more problems coming, and eventually, it's only going to be a a, a kingdom or two, or, or rather a a royal family or two away, um, generation or two. That's what I mean to say from the kingdom finally dividing under Solomon's son's rule, Rehoboam. So there are fissures in Israel as a people that run very deep. The southern tribe of Judah was the first to welcome David as he made his way to Jerusalem. And as David does, he'll have several important encounters. We're going to look at three this morning, three specific uh, incidents that David has on his way back to the throne And uh, we covered a few last time, and these three we'll look at today. So let's pray, and then we'll look at uh, the Word this morning. Father, Lord, with that (laughs) reminder and, and summary catching us up to where we are, Father, I pray that as we move into the Word this morning, that, Father, you would move in our hearts and lives. God, that these things that happened so many years ago, that, Father, you would bring a real and a powerful relevance today God, that you would make your word speak to us, that you would cause it to be that light to our our feet, the lamp, God, to our feet, light to our path that we need. Lord, that you would shine your truth into our hearts, revealing those areas, God, where you're calling us to grow and to change. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. 2 Samuel chapter 19, looking at verses 24 through 43. If you have the outline, you know that our message is titled, The Return of the King. Now, David is going to have to sort through some misunderstandings, reward the faithful, and attempt to unite this nation. He has a big job on his hands. And so, we come to the first of three encounters that David has in his return to the throne And this first one involves setting the record straight. Our first point, verse 24. Now Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king, and he cared not for his feet, nor trimmed his mustache, nor washed his clothes. For the day... From the day the king departed until the day he returned in peace. This is a a pretty graphic picture here of a guy that he hadn't bathed in a long time, and he's kind of a mess. Where where did he come from? Well, we first met Mephibosheth back in chapter 4, after David was first made king. In 2 Samuel 4.4, he's introduced to us Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son who was lame in his feet. How did that happen? Well, he was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, that is that they died on the battlefield, and his nurse took him up and fled, picked him up to carry him out because they were afraid that the war was coming for them next as survivors of the royal family. And it happened as she made haste to flee that he fell and became lame. She dropped him, Both of his feet were were broken or hurt in some other way and lacking the the right way to deal with that medically. It became a permanent problem, and he fell and became lame. His name was Mephibosheth, and he never walked again. Again in chapter 9, after David was established as king, he he had a a gracious spirit about him, and both to Saul and Jonathan, he committed that once he became king, he would really be a blessing to their family line. And so in seeking to fulfill that, he asks in 2 Samuel 9 verse 1, is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And in verse 6, now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul had come to David, he fell on his face and prostrated himself. Somebody said, yes, David, Saul's grandson, Jonathan's son is still alive. And they called for him. He came and he fell before David. Then David said, Mephibosheth? And he answered, here is your servant. So David said to him, do not fear, for I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake, and will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. Wow. Rags to riches. Mephibosheth goes from being this cripple that has nothing that's lived in fear of David to now inheriting all of his grandfather's wealth and property. Well, something strange happened years later when David was forced to flee the palace in the face of Absalom's coup. Remember, word reached David that his son was marching on the city, and he didn't want to risk war To Jerusalem, and so he left willingly with those that would come with him. Well, as he did so, he was met by this Ziba. Ziba was a servant of Saul's household that David had placed in charge of all of Saul's goods. He basically worked for Mephibosheth. Well, Ziba met David and gave to him supplies that he needed to help he and his household as they left Jerusalem. And and fled. He really endeared himself to the king, helping practically. But then after pledging loyalty, he also claimed that Mephibosheth was hoping to regain his grandfather Saul's throne once the dust settled between Absalom and David. So if you get the picture here, Ziba the servant, the guy that works for Mephibosheth, the crippled grandson of Saul, He tells David as David's fleeing Jerusalem, oh, here, take all these supplies for the journey ahead of you. Oh, and by the way, you're wondering where Mephibosheth is? (laughs) He's hoping you and Absalom fight it out and you're both dead in the end. And then he's going to take over uh, in in the name of his grandfather. And, And again, the tribe of Benjamin will rule over Israel. David hears that. And keep in mind, David is is already struggling with one of his chief advisors, Ahithophel, having turned on him, not to mention much of the nation. And, And so he says to Ziba, you know what? All of Saul's property, it's yours now. Probably a little bit hastily, he believes Ziba's report that Mephibosheth had turned against him. Well, now David and Mephibosheth son of his best uh, best friend and grandson of King Saul, now they finally meet face to face. And Mephibosheth is a mess. He hasn't bathed or taken care of himself as though he's been in mourning this whole time that David was gone because apparently he had been over the nations, embracing of Absalom over David. And so the two meet, verse 25, So it was when he had come to Jerusalem to meet the king that the king said to him, comes right out and confronts him, why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? Where were you that night when Ziba came and gave all those supplies? In fact, he told me that you were looking in my pain and loss to take the throne from me. And he answered, my lord, O king, my servant deceived me, Ziba. For your servant said, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go to the king. Because your servant is lame. In the original Hebrew, he stole my car. Mephibosheth is like, look, I'm lame in my feet. I can't walk. Ziba was supposed to bring me along. And I went out to the garage. That He was warming up the car. And all of a sudden, it's gone and I'm left. You know, of course, not really a car. But, but he's saying, look, it wasn't my fault. I didn't want to be left behind. Verse 27, and he has slandered your servant to my Lord the king, but my Lord the king is like the angel of God. Therefore, do what is good in your eyes. For all my father's house were but dead men before my Lord the king, yet your servant, yet you set your servant among those who eat at your own table. Therefore, what right have I still to cry out any more to the king? Mephibosheth's story seems to ring true here. It makes sense, and when you weigh all the facts and possible motives, it seems more that Ziba was the one lying to gain materially, which he did, and Mephibosheth was left holding the bag. I, I kind of feel like it was obvious from the beginning when it first happened, but, but again, um, I wasn't, we weren't under the pressure That David was the kingdom turning against him one of his most loyal advisors had betrayed him when Ziba came pushing a narrative that seemed like more of the same it just made sense and I think the king again acted rashly and gave everything to Ziba and now I would assume believing Mephibosheth rather than hassle with the drama and the he said she said David splits the difference. Verse 29, so the king said to him, Why do you speak any more of your matters? I have said, You and Ziba divide the land. David says, Look, you take half, and Ziba's going to get half, and I, I don't want to hear any more about this. Then Mephibosheth said to the king, Rather let him take it all, inasmuch as my lord the king has come back in peace to his own house. Here Mephibosheth's heart is really shown. David, I didn't come here so that I could, you know, get what's mine. So the inheritance could get figured out properly. You know, this this isn't probate court, Mephibosheth is saying. That's, That's not why I've come. I'm here to be restored to my friend and king. And I think that had to have touched David's heart. And again, I think David is pressed for time. He's got other matters to tend to. And rather than dig down into all the depths of it and argue and go back and forth, he just says, look, 50-50 is what we're going to do. And I'm sure his prior commitment to Mephibosheth still stood that he would dwell with him in his palace and be cared for and eat from his table. That had to have touched David's heart. If it was a test to see whether Mephibosheth would complain or demand more, I don't think it was. He passed with flying colors. He cared more for the relationship than any material possessions. In looking at these verses, I think there's for you and I some application when it comes to communication. The whole encounter, it's a good challenge and reminder to you and I to be careful first about rash decisions. And and coming too quickly to conclusions about people. Anybody ever been guilty of that before? David made a mistake here in believing Ziba without hearing or seeing all the evidence. He was in a low place. He was in a bad mood. He heard a bad report, and he just thought, well, you know, what else is new? I'm sure that's what happened, and he made a decision based on it. Proverbs 18, verse 17, contains great wisdom for us along these lines. The first one to plead his cause seems right until his neighbor comes and examines him. Have you heard that one before? Somebody can come to you and tell you their side of the story, and man, it just seems like that's it. Yep, and we're all nodding our heads going, mm-hmm, makes sense to me. We need to deal with this right now. Until until you hear the other side. And wisdom dictates that we do that, that we're careful to listen to the other side of the story. Always wait to hear that additional information. Give the other person the benefit of the doubt until you've spoken to them personally. And watch out for those moments uh, when maybe you're at a weak point, discouraged or more inclined to believe a bad report. We've all been there before. Remember that section of verses from 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that describes so well what love should look like in our lives, which by the way, we're supposed to walk in love. Verse 5, love, it does not insist on its own. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. And what about those moments when our backs are up against the wall and and, and we're just prone to believe every bad report about everybody? Verse 7, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That difficult task and decision of believing the best in people when it's hard to do so. There was a lot of evidence in that moment against Mephibosheth and and, and circumstances that caused David to believe probably the wrong thing. We have to guard against that in our own lives, and it's not easy to do. But when we are governed by the word of God and the spirit of God, we're certainly more inclined to walk in that better path. Careful. About jumping to conclusions. Now, I'd also point out the wisdom and directness in both David and Mephibosheth dealing with this head on. Mephibosheth knew he'd been lied about. Obviously, he'd lost all of his property to Ziba, but more importantly to him, he'd lost a friend in David. And for David's part, he wanted to confront this son of Jonathan by whom he thought he'd been betrayed. Rather than lurking in the shadows, despising one another from a distance, they confronted each other. Mephibosheth came to him and David said, yeah, you come here. We need to talk. Jesus speaks very directly to this. And and Matthew records it for us in Matthew 18, verse 15. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, if your sister sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he hears you, you have gained your brother And if he doesn't, then you can move on into the rest of the verses there. But the idea is, and what we see in 2 Samuel 19 this morning, is the importance in our communication of going directly to the person that has offended us or that we perceive has been an offense. We waste time and and we bring division to the body of Christ and hurt our walk with the Lord and others when we harbor bitterness, when we... Uh, allow suspicions to grow in our hearts and minds and perceive hurt, and perceived hurt, that is, rather than dealing directly with it. Well, now David comes uh, across another individual who this time the king is seeking to bless. So we go from sort of a negative situation that ends on a positive Lots to learn there. Two, two, just a straight up pot. Now, David, he's looking to bless somebody. He's looking to reward someone. Um, He's been a friend to David through this second season of exile. And our next point asks the question what's in it for me? Verse 31, and Barzillai the Gileadite came down from Rochelim and went across the Jordan with the king to escort him across the Jordan. Now, Barzillai was a very aged man, 80 years old, and he had provided the king with supplies while he stayed at Mahanaim, for he was a very rich man. At the end of chapter 17, we were first introduced to this guy, Barzillai, along with several others coming to David's aid. There's lots of instances of that, right? Ziba was one of them, this servant of Saul's and betrayer of Mephibosheth's. And then Barzillai comes along with two others, and they give supplies to David and his men who had to leave at a moment's notice and are traveling a great distance from the capital. They provide for he and his men in their escape from Jerusalem and Absalom's forces as they make their way across the Jordan into to the north. So this man in particular, though, Berzelai, bankrolled David's forces and in many ways made possible his survival and victory. And the king is very grateful. A lot of people uh, like this who were so invested in a, in a campaign might expect something from the victor. Uh, uh, what do I get out of it? Uh, or, or what's-in-it-for-me attitude. Like, you know you are where you are because of me, by the way, so let's talk about, you know, remuneration or, you know, a cabinet position or something like that. You know, I want to find out, you know, how I'm going to be rewarded. But not so for our friend Berzelai. He He invested in the kingdom because he loved the king and believed that he was called to rule, and that should be our motivation as well. I... <laughs> I visited a church recently, and I, why am I telling this story? I don't even have time. Oh, well, let's do it. Why not? It'll be fun. I was visiting a church recently, not the one I was at last week, okay, in case you're wondering, and a volunteer was telling me a story about how they used to serve in in the main sanctuary, and uh, someone had sat in a seat that was reserved it was sort of like the gold circle seating area, if you know what I mean. These were the people that gave at a certain level, and so they had a special seat where uh, it was reserved for them. And these people came in, and they were indignant that their seat had been given away, and and it was a whole thing. But anyway, um, why do we give? I, you know, we, actually, that's a good idea. We should we should the seats by the heaters, um, are the they? <laughs> The blankets, you can only have those if you grabbed an envelope. I'm just kidding. We have to be careful of our motives, though, right? Verse 33, and the king said to Beersalai, come across with me and I will provide for you while you are with me in Jerusalem. Like David had welcomed Mephibosheth into his household and provided for him, David, he wanted to honor and care for this man as as uh, as well who'd meant so much to him and been so faithful when so many others had abandoned the king. David says, I just want to recognize you. I want to honor you. It's only right. But Beersalai said to the king, How long have I to live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I'm 80 years old today. Can I discern between the good and the bad? Can can your servant taste what I eat or what I drink? Can I hear any longer the voice of singing men and singing women? Why then should your servant be a further burden to my lord, the king? You hear what he's saying. He's like, you know what, David, I really appreciate it. But my, my senses are dull because of my age. It's not like I can enjoy the delicacies at your table. I'm just, I'm kind of good with my, you know, my bowl of oatmeal at home or whatever. I don't need fancy food. And my hearing isn't so great anymore. I won't even be able to enjoy the singers in the palace courts. He's like, you know what, I just, I like to go home at the end of the day and, and you know, it's 7 o'clock at night and have my warm milk and read the paper. He's like, I'm good, David. It's okay. I, I thank you, but No. Verse 36, your servant will go a little way across the Jordan with the king. And why should the king repay me with such a reward? He says, look, I'll escort you over the Jordan. I'll be there for the parade, but then I'm going to go home. It's okay. Verse 37, please let your servant turn back again that I may die in my own city near the grave of my father and mother. But here is your servant, Shimham. Let him cross over with my Lord, the king and do for him what seems good to you. Bears a lie, he'll cross over again the Jordan with David, showing his support, but that'll be far enough. Uh, he, he likes his house, his neighborhood. He wants to end his days in the familiarity of his people. I'm sure some of us can relate to that. It's like, oh, you know what? I already bought my funeral or my uh, my graveside plot. It's right there by my parents, and I only live a block away. It's going to be a short trip, and I've got everything set up, and I've got my friend, you know, the guys. We go to the coffee shop every Wednesday morning. I don't want to upset all of that. It's that kind of a thing, right? That's what's happening here but then he does go ahead and agree to a way that David can honor and bless him. Verse 37. But here is your servant Chimham. Let him cross over with my lord, the king, and do for him what seems good to you. Now, many believe that based on a passage in 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 7, this Chimham is actually one of Barzalai's sons. Uh, There in 1 Kings, David, in giving instructions to his son Solomon, who has just uh, been coronated, um, only a short while before David will die, he says to him, to Solomon, "...but show kindness to the sons of Berzalai the Gileadite, and let them be among those who eat at your table. For so they came to me when I fled Absalom, your brother." So it may be that even more than Chimham came. It's possible David said, absolutely, lie. your son Chimham can come. And Chimham brought his household with him. It's, it's likely. But strategically, this would be a wise association with David who's looking to unite the nation in bringing this leading family from the other side of the Jordan and from the north there into the palace. These uh, northerners could help endear him to the Israelites east uh, uh, on the other side of the Jordan, bringing people together. Now, David, of course, he's wanting to honor 'er Beerselai, but he respects his request to just go home and and honors and agrees to letting this Chimham come in his place. Verse 38... And the king answered, "Chimham shall cross over with me, and I will do for him what seems good to you. Now, whatever you request of me, I will do for you. Then all the people went over the Jordan, and when the king had crossed over, the king blessed Bezali and blessed him, kissed him, excuse me, kissed Beerselai and blessed him, and he returned to his own place. Now, the king went on to Gilgal, and Chimham went on with him, and all the people of Judah escorted the king and also half the people of Israel. So this procession goes with the king back across the Jordan River in his return journey to Jerusalem. And once across, Beerselai says his goodbyes, uh, and David, along with Chimham and the rest, travel on to Gilgal and then eventually to Jerusalem. There's something here in this second section of verses this morning that speaks to our own experience as it relates to ambition and motivations, uh, what we're looking for and why we do what we do. Why did Beerselai do what he did, supporting the king? Why do you and I? Are we in it for what we can get out of it? This man simply wanted to be invested in the kingdom because he loved the king. That's a good challenge for us. Why do we give? Why do we serve? Are we looking to be recognized or get something out of it? Or are we simply seeking to be invested in the kingdom because we love our king? In Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, Jesus brings some light to this subject for us. "'Take heed that you do not your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven.'" Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, when you give, when you serve, do not let your left hand know what your right is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly." Barzalai, I think, in part, was able to walk away from David's offer uh, of honor and prestige and blessing at the capital and in the palace because he was content. He wasn't looking for more. He, He was grateful for what he had, and that was enough. And the question is, are we? Contentment, it will protect and keep you and I from a host of problems in this life. Paul's words about this are powerful and bear repeating here. First Timothy chapter six, verse six. Now, godliness with contentment is great gain for we brought nothing into this world and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money, making money into our God, not money itself, but the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. One more thing I want to point out about Berzelai. He loved the king. He was content, but he also wasn't given to self-promotion. You might say that his ego was in check and it kept him healthy, I mean, how many, when offered power and position, are able to say no? How many are constantly looking for that opportunity? Jesus, he speaks to this in a parable that Luke records for us. In chapter 14, verse 7, he told a parable, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. To those who were invited to a a feast that he was at, when he noted how they chose their best places "...saying to them, when you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. And he who invited you and him come say to you, has to come to you, uh, give place to this man. You sat in the best place, and sorry, the best man hadn't arrived yet. You're not him, but he's here now. You're going to need to move." And then you begin with shame to take the lowest place, whatever's left over. You know, you're back by the bathrooms or in the broom closet or something. So that he, when he invited you, comes and says, excuse me, but when you are invited, go and sit down in the lowest place so that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself Will be exalted. Now, finally, we're gonna look at verses 41 through 43. Our last point is better late than never. Our last encounter, and it's with a group, you might say. Verse 41, just then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, why have our brethren, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king, his household and all David's men with him across the Jordan? So now the northern tribes who before were a bit sheepish as to what to do with David, because remember, they'd been supportive with most of the nation of Absalom uh, they're wondering, would David even accept them? But now they see Judah has gone and brought David back, and they're establishing him as king. And the other guys are like, oh, great. Thanks for doing that without saying anything to us. Now we look dumb. You ever been in a situation like that where it's like, all right, we got a united front. We're all against that person. And then this guy decides to go and make peace. And you're like, oh, without what have you done? Now I look bad. You know, you should have said something to me, and we could have been on page about this. That's what's happening here. Verse 42. So all the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, because the king is a close relative of ours, why then are you angry over the matter? Have have we ever eaten at the king's expense or has he given us any gift? They're like, look, it was only right. He he ruled in our territory, the, the tribe of of Judah. and And we went to go get him. It's not like we're on the take. It's not like we're getting special treatment. We just thought it was time to do it. Verse 43, and the men of Israel answered the men of Judah and said, we have 10 shares in the king. Therefore, we also have more right to David than you. So now we've gone from being uh, afraid and not sure how to welcome David back to arguing over him, saying, we have more stake in the king than you do. Why then do you despise us? were we not the first to advise bringing back our king? They're like, look, this was our idea first. You just charged ahead and did it without saying anything to us. Yet the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. So the parade continues forward and it just speaks to an ongoing schism that I mentioned earlier that is sort of there in the background in Israel as a people. And it's going to manifest more fully Under the reign of Solomon's son, Rehoboam. There'll actually be a split, and from that time forward, Israel will exist as two separate kingdoms the northern and the southern. Unity and forgiveness. A final thought here as we consider these problems between the tribes. Though David was able to reconcile even with his enemies, The nation had a harder time. Pride prevented them from simply humbling themselves and getting along. Just saying, look, God's brought peace to our land. The man he chose to be king from the very beginning is going to be on the throne. Let's just be content with that. Put our eyes on God and serve him. Sometimes pride can keep you and I from course correcting simply because we're too proud and embarrassed to admit that we were wrong. We need to be on guard against this, this sin, because it will prevent us from making amends and repairing relationships. In our following Jesus and seeking to be Christ-like, there's to be a graciousness about us, a willingness to forgive that, that we're not seeing here among the tribes Luke records these words of Jesus in chapter 6, verse 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who spitefully use you. To him who strikes you on the, on the one cheek, offer the other also. And from him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who asks of you. And from him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. Just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them likewise. Verse 35, But love your enemies, do good in land, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the unthankful in evil. Therefore be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. Don't hold out in pride, insisting on getting what you deserve. Remember, What we deserve is judgment. Instead, give mercy that you might receive it. In the body of Christ, unity is more important than being right. In your marriage, unity is more important than being right. I've I've joked before, you've heard me say it. You can either be married or you can be right. But very often, you can't have both. Better to humble yourself. Be a peacemaker. Holding on to the need to justify... Not enough people laughed at that. I should say it again. (laughs) Holding on to the need to justify ourselves, to have the other person or, or group acknowledge us. It's dangerous, and it'll keep you and I from enjoying God's full blessings in and through our lives, and it'll keep us from enjoying and anticipating the return of the king. Israel was not able to fully focus on and appreciate what God was doing because they were looking at themselves and harboring things that would keep them from being unified and effective as a people. Do you see the application? It hasn't been the focus of today's chapter, but I want to end today's message that way. Are you and I living ready some of us imagine that just because we study, talk about Jesus' coming, understand the, the, the details of it theologically, that, that we are in fact ready. But we don't live that way. We're fine with harboring bitterness, disunity, and a refusal to love or forgive our enemies, so called. To be ready for her king, Israel had to unite I'll close with an illustration from history and maybe Izzy, if you could come up and help us get ready to finish with a final song. The word Maranatha it is a Syriac expression that means our Lord comes. It was used as a greeting in the early church when believers gathered or parted. They didn't say hello or goodbye. They said Maranatha. If we had the same upward look today, the author writes, it would revolutionize the church. Oh, that God's people had a deepening awareness of the imminent return of the Savior. He goes on, while on a South Pole expedition, famed British explorer Ernest Shackleton left a few men on Elephant Island. Maybe some of you have read about this uh, story in history. You're familiar with it. Promising that he would return. Well, two years later... On August the 25th, 1916, when he tried to go back, huge icebergs blocked the way. But suddenly, as if by a miracle, an avenue opened in the ice and Shackleton was able to get through. His men, ready and waiting, quickly scrambled aboard. And no sooner had the ship cleared the island than the ice crashed back together behind them. Contemplating their narrow escape, the explorer said to his men, "'It was fortunate that you were all packed and ready to go.' They replied, we never gave up hope. Whenever the sea was clear of ice, we rolled up our sleeping bags and reminded each other, the boss may come today. Miraculously, all 28 survived their experience of waiting. The hymn writer Horatio, Hor- Horatius Bonar excuse me, exhorted us to be ready for the last moment by being ready at every moment. So attending to every duty that... Let him come when he may. He finds the house in perfect order upon his return. The trumpet may sound at any time. How important for us as Christians to be packed and ready to go. And I think this morning's chapter in speaking to how we maintain relationships, the condition of our hearts, it speaks to our readiness for our Savior. Are you and I ready for the return of the King attending to every duty, every place in our lives where God's spirit would call us to repent and change. May that be true. May it be so for each of us. Stand with me, please, would you? Father, we thank you, God, for this word. And I pray this morning that, Lord, the challenge that you have presented to our hearts, we would respond to with a, with a yes, with a humility, with a here am I, send me. Jesus, we want to be ready. And we know that that means living the way you've called us to. Help us to live with a vulnerability that says yes to you, even in those places where it's hard, where you would call us to humble ourselves, to walk in change. Meet us here, Lord, as we worship you now in Jesus' name.